Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. I'm Jenny Jagman. I'm Eva Garmendia. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this month's episode. Uh, today, we're lucky enough to feature an interview that Eva did with Dr. Francois Le Breton, who's a group leader at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research uh, in the U.S., and uh, Eva got the opportunity to interview him at the eye care course in October 2019. And that's why the recording might be not perfect, but it, it's pretty, you can hear what's going on at least. And I hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. So today we have with us Francois Le Breton, Dr. Francois Le Breton, who is also part of the course we've been previously talking about. And could you please, Francois, introduce yourself to our audience? Good morning, everyone. So uh, my name is Francois Le Breton, and I am a group leader at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research in Maryland in the U.S. And my group does genomic epidemiology. And so we are using computers to understand the spread of uh, multi-drug resistant organisms throughout the military systems in the U.S. and outside the U.S. What is your background? What have you studied? Yeah, so my background is in molecular biology. I did my PhD in France, looking at virulence in bacteria. And after that, I uh, was interested in antibiotic resistance, mostly by being exposed to uh, professors at the Pasteur Institute, namely uh, Patrice Courvalin, who is the organizer of the course. And uh, he got me interested in the uh, medical uh, relevance of antibiotic resistance. And so I decided that this will be uh, the course for my career. And I then moved to Boston, uh, Harvard Medical School, to do my postdoc with uh, Professor Mike Gilmore. And that was a time in 2012 when uh, computers and genomics and sequencing DNA was something that was exploding and starting. Uh, the genomic era was at his uh, best. And so we got interested into uh, sequencing DNA and comparing genomes of bacteria. So you basically, you did nothing related with bioinformatics before you move on to your postdoc. And then it was very focused on AMR and bringing together this bioinformatics size and AMR at the very beginning of it. That is correct. I think uh, I brought to my uh, postdoctoral lab some experience and expertise in the clinical understanding of AMR. And they gave me uh, exposure to top uh, bioinformatician people at the Broad Institute and others. And I just learned listening to them and uh, overlooking behind their shoulder and trying to understand what they've done. And this is how I've learned most of what I know in terms of bioinformatics right now. Can you explain to our audience, which is generally quite mixed, what is the power and what bioinformatics can bring to the AMR field, to the, to the studies of resistance and antimicrobial resistance? Right, so there are obviously a lot of different fields. The field I am working on is what we call genomic epidemiology, which means we use the power of high throughput sequencing, so the ability to sequence a lot of DNA for a relatively small price to be able to compare the genetic information between bacteria to identify their level of relatedness. The reason why this matters is that two distinct strains can or cannot come from the same source. If we are thinking about hospital 
transmission and acquisition of multi-drug resistant pathogen, understanding if there are nosocomial, hospital-acquired infections and transmission from one patient to another, is key for infection control and try to limit and detect outbreak. So this is a field that is booming with the expansion of genomic. Mm -hmm. how, how was it done before all this uh, genomic era happened? Yeah, most of the outbreak detection before was done by the eyes of physicians and infectious disease docs who were able to identify patterns of phenotype that looked similar, having them suspect an outbreak. And then they would go and uh, perform PCR on a very small selected amount of genes and identify if those genes were identical enough. But the level of resolution was obviously very, very low compared to genomics. So now we can really get the information from where to where. And I guess it would be also easier to find what is normally called patient zero or where actually a specific outbreak comes from. Much that, easier. That's exactly right. We can track outbreaks from one room to another in a hospital setting. We can track the movement of clones from one patient to another. We can identify if there are environmental sources in a hospital that are contaminated and that are receding uh, infections in different patients through time. So all that is now available thanks to the power of genomics. Do you also work with some other source of information, not only outbreaks, but understanding resistance in some other ways that doesn't have to really do with the hospitals and infections? Yes, so there are other aspects to uh, what we do. There is a dimension of what we call surveillance which is monitoring the presence and absence of specific lineages of multidrug organisms that carry or not antibiotic resistant genes of particular interest. And so because of the spread of the uh, military treatment facilities throughout the globe, we have access to sampling from different countries and we can monitor the presence of key resistances or key pathogens throughout the globe. This to me make, makes me think a little bit about how not only looking into this, the system that the military allows you, that everything is pretty much controlled and we know where the things are moving. And the fact that the military has connections in different countries actually gives a lot of power to this, right? That is exactly right. It's a very unique network of treatment facilities throughout the globe. And that is something relatively unique in the military, uh, for sure. Yeah. So since you did your PhD in an area that wasn't, it was related to infections, but not really resistance or AMR, and then you came into this field and you learned a lot since you started. Could you perhaps reflect a little bit, what were the main challenges you found in coming into this field and learning about it and, and working in the bioinformatics area? You know, I, I, from the bioinformatics standpoint, the main challenge is very clear. Uh, we have the ability to generate a lot of data computers can generate a tremendous amount of data, but uh, humans are having a hard time to analyze the data at the speed at which it is generated. Mm -hmm. And so we very quickly get surrounded by enormous amount of data and we don't really know where to start, how to start analyzing this gigantic Cs of A, T, C, and G <laughs> that we get when, when we sequence the genome. So the first thing that you learn is to apply everything that is similar to an experimental 
science that you learn when you do molecular biology is you want to ask very specific questions, make sure that your sequencing experiment is going to be properly controlled, make sure that you collect the metadata associated to the samples that will allow you to do meaningful comparisons. And this is really the key that I would highlight to anyone who has interest in starting a career in bioinformatics is to really understand it in the idea that this is a controlled experiment. They need to ask relevant biological question if they want their computer to provide them with meaningful information. This has to start there. Yeah, because I find like a lot of people see bioinformatics or data, like something that you can get so much power. You go out there and you fish anything. It's not a hypothesis page. You just say, okay, let's sequence all this and then we see what we can do with it. But that's perhaps not the best approach, right? That is exactly right. I think uh, we always tend to say that uh, the computer will always give you data. Now, can you make sense of this data depends on you and mostly depends on the work you put before the sequencing part and the computer I, I really aspect. liked what you said at the beginning of your first lecture that was like your data is as good as the thing you put into the sequencer, right? So you cannot really work with something that is not good from a start. That is exactly so. right. And then, you know, we have talked about genomic epidemiology, but there are other fields of bioinformatics that are expanding right now. Uh, machine learning algorithms are becoming something very thought after in the field of antimicrobial resistance, where people are trying to quickly predict phenotypic resistance. So the actual ability of a bacteria to resist to a compound or not. And we think we can use the genes, the genotypic information to be able to train computers to predict Phenotypic. Oh, no. uh, this this works. Behaviors. The more data we have, the more the machines are gonna be able to really predict the real outcome because it's based on real outcome data, right? That is exactly right. So the idea that a lot of people have is they will sequence the genomes of every single bacteria from a given hospital. And if you do that enough, at one point, a computer will be able to pick up patterns in those genomes that correspond to the ability of a given strain to resist or not to an antibiotic. This could be used to do more like rapid identification of susceptibility, even though it wouldn't be practical, it would be theoretical, but it could actually lead to different treatment options chosen or... Correct. So the sequencing word has entered about five years ago what we call the third generation of sequencing, which is real-time sequencers, where we can stop and start and stop sequencing runs and collect and analyze the data in real-time, which obviously we're not there yet, but opens the door for bedside genomic and uh, bedside uh, rapid diagnostic. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that. If you think that we could envision a future where actually the doctors, either at the hospitals or in the primary care even, they would be able to have this little machine. I think maybe the only limit to it, it would be the quality of the data you put in, right? How do Correct. you get uh, the real bacteria that is infecting or making the, the infection and then really be able to analyze it there. But it looks like it would be super interesting. Yeah, I think that is correct. Obviously, uh, we are very far from that future, but the technology is starting to lead toward at least the possibility that this will become something uh, 
we could possibly do. Yeah. That's very interesting. I'm wondering, what is your experience with working with people that are related to your type of work, but they don't really have a background on AMR or resistance? Like I'm thinking if you have worked with people working in machine learning, in artificial intelligence, in data mining, this type of thing. Have, have you worked in those type of environments? Yeah, so I have a little bit. I have in my group uh, people who have uh, received extensive training in uh, computer science but not necessarily uh, antimicrobial resistance. And I think one of the good things is that we all throughout our education have been exposed to some level of understanding of the threat of the antibiotic resistance. And most of us are aware that this is an important problem, in fact, a growing problem. And so there is a level of awareness Mm -hmm. that everyone has. And so that also means there is a level of excitement working in that field for computational biologists that in past experiences might have worked on very different aspects. And so the medical relevance and the importance of the problem is something that motivates a lot of computational biologists to join us. I was also thinking about, it's a little bit like they are not already biased by the problem mm -hmm. and they might be able to look at the problem from a different angle than oh. you that are within it. So do you have any examples of how having these people coming into your team and joining efforts has benefited your ongoing research? You know, I think it's a very good question. I do not have example that comes to mind in my team right now, but uh, there are certainly well-known examples of mathematicians who came to the field and provided with key algorithms that are now used in every single genome analyzing mm -hmm. pipeline that are based on their findings. And so, yes, for sure, we benefit from uh, the expertise of everyone regardless of their original training and the fact that they come with a fresh set of eyes mm -hmm. is, is very valuable. Yeah. Do you find any challenge understanding people that are coming from other fields when you want to go to common goals? I would say uh, maybe not from the computational biologists only, but from a general public awareness standpoint. I think there is a a misconception that we have right now that we are fighting bacteria and mm. that uh, we are at war against them. Mm -hmm. And I think that the uh, antibiotic resistance field has to do a better job at explaining that uh, maybe uh, when we designed the first drug, the magic bullet, a hundred mm -hmm. years ago, maybe we were at war with them but now with the advances of the microbiome studies with the advances of mm -hmm. our understanding on how much we are exposed to bacteria we need to change the paradigm and enter an era of management of exposure with microbes yeah. this is what we need to do we don't want to necessarily kill them we want to no, we, keep, we them, right? keep them <laughs> keep them at bay yes. so they're not where we don't want them to be Or the specific types that we don't want to have, exactly but, right. but the benefit of, I mean, we've talked a little bit about this before in the podcast, I think, making sure that everybody understands that we do need bacteria. They are very important for our biology, the human biology, and many other things, but not all the bacteria are bad, so we are not really at war, even though we have these potential threats that are so big. That is exactly right. And, you know, when we think about hospital 
And uh, I'm sure most of the people who are following us today are aware that nosocomial infections, which are infections acquired in a hospital, are a very, very big problem. And we can ask ourselves, why is that? Well, it is because in a hospital, we try to create a vacuum where uh, bacteria, at least pathogenic one, are not there. So we can treat patients for cancer or we can treat patients that have immunocompromised uh, function. And when you create a vacuum like this, uh, nature abhors a vacuum. So nature will fill it mm-hmm. with specific bacteria that we call the escape pathogens that are specifically good at colonizing now when we throw antibiotics or when we throw antiseptics. Mm -hmm. And those are the reason of the problem. We created a very specific ecology in the hospital for them to thrive. Yeah, because this is something that came out during the course as well about that these resistance organisms are not organisms that are normally found in normal environments, be it the normal flora when an individual is healthy or being out there in the soil. So we have created a niche for these bacteria to thrive and to reproduce, right? At the hospital, for sure. At the hospital. Mm -hmm. Mm. Because you've been actually studying these nosocomial outbreaks uh, what do you think it needs to be changed for these instances to not happen, or at least the way they happen right now? Yeah, so there are obviously different layers. I think it is very obvious that um, we are running out of drugs to treat multidrug resistant organisms. So everyone will tell you that we need new compounds to treat some kinds of pathogens, mostly the gram-negatives, for which we have a very limited amount of options. So if you have good antibiotics and good drugs, you very quickly can limit the extent of an outbreak uh, Mm -hmm. because you will be able to treat your patient, you will kill the specific organism, and that will avoid patient-to-patient transmission and limit the spread that way. So having good drug is key. The second aspect is that once we have good drug, we need to protect them. We need to use them very wisely. Mm -hmm. We need to use them very carefully. I still cannot understand that despite all the knowledge we have and we've heard during this whole course and this whole week, that 70% of all the antibiotics that are consumed on Earth are not for humans. Yeah. So this is something that we have knowledge, we know what are the impacts of that, and we keep doing. Mm -hmm. And so this is infuriating when you are an expert working in the field. So having good drug, preserving them. And then I think we are more and more, thanks to genomic, developing an understanding of how exactly the bacteria spread in a population, Mm -hmm. in a hospital setting. And we can try to cut the route. We can try to limit the ability from one bacteria to spreading to another. So this ties in a little bit with hospital culture and human behavior when it comes to how the doctors treat the patients, how the patients treat each other. Um, Water sanitation in countries that do not have yet the level of mm. infection controls that we might have in developed countries. Water sanitation would go a very long way in some developing countries to help them fight their particular antimicrobial resistant organism. Yeah, because in in those places where, well, we don't even talk about access to antibiotics, which is really bad, Mm -hmm. but in those places... 
the spread of the bacteria is possibly what is causing the most amount of damage, right? Yeah, that is correct. The spread and also we obviously live in a global world mm -hmm. where multi-drug resistant organisms do not respect borders. So we need to realize as a community that their problem with water sanitation is our problem too. Uh, the bacteria that they are, are dealing with are going to end up in our hospital one day or another. And so investing in helping them getting to a level of uh, sanitation and mm -hmm. to a level of hospital care that we think is appropriate should definitely be a priority for the field. Have you worked with a spread of bacteria in developing countries or in different type of settings, not only hospitals in developed countries? Yeah, I personally have not, mm -hmm. but there are a lot of programs who are doing just that. In the past five years or so, there has been the emergence of a concept that is named One Health that mm -hmm. I'm sure you have yeah. talked about mm -hmm. in, in previous podcasts. And people are investing resources doing just this, uh, helping local hospitals uh, in uh, developing countries uh, mm. to control their infections and prevent uh, transmissions. Where would you hope or where do you see your field going onwards? What do you think it's going to, like, what are going to be perhaps the major innovations coming into your field? Or why do you hope that it would actually happen? Yeah, well, I think that we are in the era of um, figuring out what can we do with the data that we generate. Mm -hmm. Uh, that era, I have the hope, is going to be relatively quickly followed by the era of we know exactly what to do with those large data sets and we can leverage them to practically give the physician mm -hmm. answers and we can talk about diagnostic. It starts there, being able to know what organism, mm -hmm. being able to know what drugs can work against that organism and being able to know that in the shortest time frame possible. Mm -hmm. And so right now we are figuring out how to generate the data quickly enough and how to analyze the data quickly enough. And we are not where we need to be uh, right now. It would take two weeks to do a proper genetic analysis of a bacterial genome. The technology will allow us to make it faster. Being used to data analysis will allow us to do that faster to hopefully being able to deliver a practical information for physicians to treat their patients. That sounds sounds like a good goal, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we there is a question that we generally ask our our interviewees about what do you think is the most misunderstood concept about your field in the general public? I mean, when you talk to your friends or to your family. You know, one thing that I hear a lot is that when we do bioinformatics, we come up with models and somehow the word models, I'm not exactly sure what people mean by that, and that those models are always hypothetical. Mm -hmm. And that is not necessarily true. There is a field that is named functional genomics that does a lot of computational work to help generate hypotheses that will then be tested directly in the lab. And that is what more and more people are doing because they are generating very impactful studies and impactful advances to the field. So I think we really need to think about that field as a way of opening new doors and new avenues that can be tested further in the lab. 
So it's a way of breaking down large data set and that doesn't have to stay at the stage of hypothesis. It can, it lead, can actually lead exactly. to more testing and mm -hmm. proof of concept as well. Yeah, I would say so, yeah. Good. Is there anything else you would like to tell our audience? Something that you hope that people understand or know about either your work or other in the field? No, I would, uh, in a more general statement, I would say that uh, the week that we have spent together here shows that we are in dire need of smart individuals who are willing to spend hours thinking about that very big problem that uh, we all face. And that is, that is a problem that is not going to go away as the population on, on Earth increases, as uh, we all live longer and we have different kinds of disease that expose us to infection more and more. That means we need more and more people being interested in that field. And uh, whether you are a mathematician, whether you are uh, maybe not even a scientist, but a good data analyst in the financial field, uh, I think you could think that uh, everyone can contribute one way or another to that big problem. And so it's a matter of raising the interest, showing that the issue is paramount mm -hmm. and that we need everyone's expertise to be able to move the field forward. When I think about I think it's a beautiful way to end the interview. When I think about that, I, I have like two weights in my hand, right? One is like when you talk to people that are not scientists, you want for people to trust science. You need to kind of to show or make them see that you know a lot and that you're super sure about what is it. But then on the other hand, you have like, no, we don't have everything figured out. We need people that come and work in it. Mm -hmm. And then you might compromise the belief that people have in science because you are basically always acknowledging we don't know everything. We need more people working on this. We need to put more efforts. Mm -hmm. So it's like two sides of the same coin, right? You want the people to believe that this is worth a while, that the work that scientists do is important and show that we know what we're doing on the other hand we are ignorant in in certain areas so for sure i think we would agree together to say that uh, the best research is the one that is at the cutting edge of knowledge which means that um, the best research is very prone to mistake and we realize that later but it doesn't mean it was useless it mm -hmm. just means we know now we need to reroute the effort to another area and possibly make mistakes again, but it is how we make progress. Yeah, this is how we get somewhere. Yeah, so yeah. I, I hope that the people that listen to us get your message that uh, there is a lot of potential for work here. You don't really need to be trained in science to be able to give to it and be able to make a difference. Yep. Great. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks Francois. to you. That was Thank a you. pleasure. Bye. Welcome back, everyone. So... I would say that maybe this time we don't have so, so much to explain or talk about because I believe that Francois has done a wonderful job about explaining difficult concepts of his uh, field, which is maybe not so common or not so familiar for many of you listening at home, but I think he actually was able to put it in very simple terms. But still, I want to yeah, know definitely. the impressions that Jenny had about the interview because uh, she, of course, wasn't there. And then maybe a couple of things more that we can talk about the interview this time. Absolutely. So I totally agree. Um, I think that Dr. Leberton was very, very good at explaining a lot of the different topics that he brought up. I mean, we, there's very little that we need to explain in any kind of jargon. I thought it was very good. All in all, I thought his interview was very interesting because I liked hearing his background story, first and foremost. I mean, from somebody who's 
kind of gone into a different field from his PhD. I mean, you'd spend a lot of time doing one thing and you change completely into maybe the same kind of topic. And of course, it sounds like it's something that interested him and he had a personal interest. But I can't imagine personally going becoming a bioinformatician now. <laughs> um, and just very much that he was talking about like learning by doing and basically everybody has different skills that they can bring to the table and this mix of different skills and how you can kind of come out of that with new competencies and new expertise. And I thought it was just a really nice, interesting background. Yeah. So one of the first things we thought that perhaps we can dwell a little bit more on, and that is particularly interesting to talk about today, it's what an outbreak is, right? Because Francois was explaining that he works uh, into using bioinformatics, bioinformatics tools to understand how the different outbreaks happen for resistant organisms. But outbreaks can also happen for viruses. So, for example, As SARS-CoV-2. Now. <laughs> yes. And uh, sometimes outbreaks equals to an epidemic as well. So outbreak, it will be a little bit more the scientific term to talk about it. And uh, in the street, mostly we will say there is an epidemic of this or that. Uh, but we want I think to... also outbreak can be outbreak can cover a lot more things. Well, an epidemic has a very specific de- definition. A pandemic has a very specific specific definition. Well, outbreak, I mean, it can be a hospital has an outbreak. It can be a geographical area has an outbreak. Mm-hmm. It can be a totally different scales. So basically, what what is an outbreak, Jenny? Can you can, can we start talking a little bit? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> so it's basically, I mean, in the sense, if we take an example with um, Dr. Liberton's work. If you're talking about an outbreak of resistant strains in a hospital setting, then it's mainly that we realize that suddenly a lot of patients are either coming in or identifying after being in the hospital for a while with the same resistant infection. So mm-hmm. we see that the same, the, the cause of the infection is the same and it's kind of spreading to different patients. Yes. So basically, um, an, an outbreak would be when there is disease or an infectious disease, for example, in this case with resistant organisms, that occurs at a higher rate than what would be the normal case. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be thousands of people getting sick from the same thing. It could be just a few patients that actually present the same type of infection that is uh, from a resistant mm-hmm. organisms. Then we can consider there is an outbreak in this hospital, in this setting, from this specific organism. Yeah. And so in Dr. Leberton's case, they can trace, I mean, in, or in many of these new, newer cases with hospital outbreaks, you can trace like the actual genetic origin. You can kind of trace from, like you said, from patient to patient, how the infection is spreading, where it came from, how it's developing over time. And then if you kind of compare this to the SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19 outbreak, then we can kind of do the same sort of thing. But you can trace this virus, for example, genetically and see where like where the genetics happened and kind of trace origins trace where like oh when it spread to the u.s they could kind of identify did it come from asia did it come from europe that sort of thing yes and actually we will leave a resource in the show notes it's called the next strain.org project which actually you can go in and you can see all the sequence strains of the virus that is going on around from all around the world and then you can see how they genetically relate to each other this is very similar to what francois was explaining that his work is uh, the only difference is that he uses this resistance organisms as the organisms are studying instead of the viruses but you can get an idea of how this type of work is done and how it's visualized as well which is really cool and very interesting to see i think that what's going on right now in the world kind of helps people see what the benefit of dr leberton's work would be in a hospital setting like if 
you know where the infection came from, you understand how it's spreading because you can see this by tracing. It's a lot of all this information can really help in stopping the outbreak. Mm-hmm. And we're hoping, of course, that a similar thing might be useful in this SARS-CoV-2 case, but that's, of course, a little bit more complicated when it's something very novel and widespread. Yeah, and that is pressed in different ways. So that's why we're going to really correlate the type yeah. of, of what, what, what can we do with the information in the case of a resistant organism in a hospital setting versus a pandemic, which mm-hmm. is a pandemic is basically when an outbreak it has gone to such a level that is shared all around the world in different countries. Yeah. That's why at the beginning when people were saying, oh, is this an epidemic or is this already a pandemic? And then there was a moment where the WHO, the World Health Organization, declared that this was a pandemic because it wasn't just different epidemics or outbreaks in different countries, but it was widespread. Yeah. So So that has a totally new importance to our life today (laughs) than what it did when you had this interview, but it's still, of course, important to be able to trace these things, even with antibiotic Mm -hmm. resistance infections and other sorts of things. There's another part of something that you guys discussed that has taken on a new importance in today's environment. But either way, I thought it was an interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you talked about this trust in science, and it kind of came from this idea of you can definitely have something to give frontline research, even if you aren't a scientist or that's kind of a loose definition as well. Uh, Anyone with different expertises can contribute to helping in the case of what you were talking about, the AMR problem or in today's problem, but that we kind of in that way also have to admit that we don't know everything. And it's kind it can be kind of hard for scientists to admit that because part of how I think a lot of people think they need to get legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Like the way you, you gain legitimacy is by kind of claiming that you, you, can solve, you can answer all the questions. But obviously no one can answer all the questions, especially in these new cases like antimicrobial resistant infections that we don't know a lot about yet, like the ones that are newer and developing. Everything's constantly developing. And SARS-CoV-2, we don't know anything about or anything. We know some things, but <laughs> we obviously don't know everything about it. But it comes down to being confident enough to say we don't know, but also at the same time, bring up the benefit of, well, this is what we do know, and this is how certain we are about it. This is what we suspect. This is what might, it might be, and all this kind of thing, like not letting it be so black and white, you know? Yeah. The different expertises can be logically used and be the base of future work in the topics that we are actually needing. Like, we don't know everything. Of course, we don't know everything. But the things that we do know can actually be very helpful to get more information uh, in the future, right? And nowadays with the COVID-19, it's it's always, it's like this balance. Do we we want all the answers from the scientists? But the scientists don't have all the answers because it's very new. It's the approach should be the right one, but that doesn't mean that we actually know everything right now. It's been nice to see that a lot of people have been trying to come to the with their skills in what's going on now and it would be Mm -hmm. nice to see that continuing with AMR after this is over oh yeah that would be great (laughs) yeah it'd be really great to see the same sort of like everybody kind of collecting together and bringing everything they have to the table for the future problems I mean this kind of relates to what we have mentioned a couple of times that the the urgency of the problem is not the same Uh, therefore the response is not the same but it's it's really interesting how people react to the situations depending on how the situation is presented to them, right? 
yeah, of course, yeah. COVID-19 is a pandemic, is happening fast, is right now having effects. And therefore, everyone that can do something is doing something about it. But somehow I would love to see the same type of response to the AMR problem, right? Yeah, absolutely. One can only hope. <laughs> yeah, maybe the mindset actually changes uh, when it yeah. comes to health, uh, global health issues. Uh, and I, I think both on, part, on the part of scientists that maybe aren't that great at listening to other people's perspective, as well as other people feeling like I do have something to give. Mm-hmm. I think it can, yeah. it can come from both sides. So That's great. Hopefully some good comes out of this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we also wanted to mention, uh, yeah, Francois Le Breton is uh, being part of the, of the iCare course since the beginning of the ICAR course. Uh, and we mentioned here that it's going to happen this year as well in October, but now we got news that it's actually been uh, postponed to 2021 due to COVID-19 pandemic. So you can always follow up in the website, uh, the new dates. And I encourage if you have interest and you have the means to keep uh, an eye on when it's happening and then sign up because it's like incredibly useful. And I believe after this is going to be even more useful. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. With that, I think we want to move on to the news. Yes. So today for the news for this episode, we thought we would talk a little bit about machine learning. As we This was a topic that came up during uh, Dr. Le Breton's interview. And it's actually a pretty useful tool for antimicrobial resistance uh, research. So Ava, would you like to introduce the concept of machine learning very briefly for us? Yes, I will at least try. <laughs> it's easier said than done. Uh, yes. So yeah, as Jenny mentioned, we thought that it was interesting to uh, dwell a little bit in the new section about this machine learning new approach to AMR research, because there's been a couple of recent published papers touching precisely on this. So we think that it's good to start by just generalizing, talking about what machine learning is um, and how it kind of differs of, of the computational methods that we might have already uh, been using for a while. Because, of course, computational biology, computational science is something that has been going on for quite a while. And machine learning is something a little bit more new and different. So machine learning uh, methods and algorithms, basically what they're trying to attempt is to learn how to analyze a set of data. So basically, it's a computational method where you give the method a set of input data, and then the method is going to look into relationships and information within that set of data that you have given it and learn how to analyze that data. And this basically means, for example, we are going to talk at length a little bit more later, but for example, if you look at a set of data and you tell the machine, okay, this set of data has these results. So this is the data that you actually have worked with and you give the system. So the, this, the machine is going to look into knowing that what other kind of relationships there are within the data that you have provided and then come up with a solution with the hopes that then later you can give it another set of data which you don't know the result of and then it, it will be able to apply what it has learned on that first set to give you the answer that you're looking for. 
And this, as I said, we're going to now explain how it applies to AMR research in a couple of examples. But that's basically the overall idea of machine learning. And that yeah. can be applied to different ways or so different data that you will give in it to get different results or different answers that you are looking for. But it's basically looking for patterns to try, kind of try to predict things that we humans, I guess, can't really predict. Like we don't have, we can't compute it to that level uh, manually. So it's, and also try to reduce the biases that we exactly. might have because we are heavily biased. So the idea is that these machine learning algorithms will not rely on those biases that we do have when looking at data. Yeah, and manage things a lot faster. This is a very time-driven method as well. Yeah, so you're able to give a lot of input data and then get a result in a much faster way that you would do with current computational uh, methods that we have. Yeah. Um, so... Jenny, do you want to maybe introduce the first uh, set of experiments of set of studies that we are going to look into where machine learning is applied? Yeah, so we're actually going to look into something called a systematic review or a meta-analysis uh, paper, which is called Machine Learning for Microbial Identification and Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing on Malditoff Mass Spectra, a systematic review. Uh, this review was published in Clinical Microbiology and Infection on the 13th of March of 2020. And it's an open access article. So this is something that hopefully everybody can see if they want to see. There's a diagnostic tool that we use called Molitoff mass spectra. We'll get into that in a minute, but they're basically looking at identifying species of bacteria and trying to predict if the bacteria are, or in this case, I actually also look at other microbes, including fungi, and also trying to see if they're resistant to antimicrobials. So this is kind of one side of what you can do with machine learning is trying to improve identification and predict resistance patterns. So if we actually talk a little bit about what Molditoff is, what kind of uh, method is, and it's really, it's used as widespread use nowadays in microbiology. So the Molditoff is a very big machine. And I actually, last year at ECMIT, uh, I was able to actually see the machine and it's incredibly big. So I was <laughs> like, oh my God, this is the Molitov, the almighty Molitov. Yeah. So basically what this machine does is you are able to get a little bit of a sample of bacteria grown from the patient. You put it inside and then the machine shoots some lasers at the samples. What does is to fragment the, the, the proteins that are inside that bacteria. And then it does a mass spectrometry of those fragments. It's a, it's, a, it's a method that basically it's able to see the molecular weight of these fragments of the, of the proteins. And then the analysis, what it does, it gets a fingerprint of all those fragments of all those proteins that are contained in that bacterial sample. And it's able to analyze that data and tell you which bacteria it is, basically identify it. And also in some cases, depending on how the resistance is actually happening. So if the resistance mm -hmm. of, to, for example, methicillin comes from a protein that is expressed and is present there, or some uh, beta-lactam resistance that comes also for, from these enzymes that the bacteria might have. So that is also present in the fingerprint. Then the machine can tell you, oh, this, for example, is a methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus because it is expressing that uh, protein and we can see it in the fingerprint. So the machine is actually already looking at data that is given it, that is this fragment. But the idea with using maybe machine learning is because perhaps in 
this data that the machine is generating, there are other patterns that we don't know that can help us get faster and better identification or um, assessment of the resistant patterns within it. And that's why they, they justify looking into this and how machine learning could actually help the Molotov identification system and uh, workflow. So since this study was a meta-analysis, they actually looked at different studies that have been performed before and kind of compared them and gave them a score of how good these studies were on certain parameters. And they found 36 studies that they're looking at. And again, this is looking at improving species identification and looking at antimicrobial susceptibility testing. And what they found is, I mean, these studies all used very different uh, algorithms and different methods and all that sort of thing. They also looked at different species but there was some overlap between the species that they're looking at. They're looking at improved identification of, a, of one specific species, for example, or one specific antibiotic resistance mechanism or antimicrobial resistance mechanism. Because interestingly enough, in this study, they also actually looked at uh, fungals. They looked at resistance to an antifungal um, fluconazole. So this is more looking at antimicrobial resistance rather than just antibiotic resistance, which is always a little bit fun and very clinically relevant as well. But in general, what they found was that while a lot of these studies did do have relatively interesting results, they sometimes had struggles with reproducibility because they didn't give enough information. They didn't give all the parameters that were needed. Uh, they used tools that maybe weren't really that applicable to clinical use because they need to be more adaptable and more open. They also, in many cases, didn't externally validate, meaning uh, if you run this whole test kind of on one hospital's data, you'd take the testing sample. So also, you know, what the what the machine is learning on this testing group, as well as like what the next samples that you're trying to see how good is this working, or if they're all taken from one hospital, then this might not be that applicable if you're comparing to another hospital that might have different sampling methods, might have different um, handling methods for the Malditoff and such. So not a lot of studies did that step, which is actually very important if you're gonna apply it clinically, but overall it was an interesting way to see all these different things that they're looking at. And as you mentioned, one of the interesting things from an antimicrobial resistance standpoint, aside from the fact that it's always helpful to properly identify a species, <laughs> I mean, that's an important step in being able to treat a patient. A lot of the times with antimicrobial resistance testing, they were looking at Staphylococcus aureus. So if you recognize MRSA, methicillin-resistant methicillin Staphylococcus aureus, then you see that this was actually relatively well able to differentiate this sort of method was able to differentiate between resistant Staphylococcus aureus and sensitive Staphylococcus aureus in regards to methicillin resistance, which is really useful. I mean, this is a clinically important bacteria, less now than before, but still relevant. And on top of that, they're also able to look at uh, vancomycin resistance in methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which is a new thing that's been evolving over time. It's something that the, uh, hospitals need to keep in mind because vancomycin is usually what you use to treat MRSA when you can't use the standard treatment for Staphylococcus aureus. So that was one way that you can use machine learning to look at antimicrobial resistance, but there is another way, another side of this story. So Ava, do you want to talk about the other paper that we looked at? Yes, we are going to talk about it briefly. This is actually sadly not a paper that is open access. So it's in was published in Cell Journal back in the 20th of February of this year. So it's a little bit uh, 
past. We decided not to talk about it back in the days because we had other things that were a little bit more interesting for that moment. And also we kind of didn't tie it up with the interview, but it's really well fitting for, for today. So this article has the title, A Deep Learning Approach to Antibiotic Discovery. And as Jenny mentioned, it's another way of using machine learning methods and approaches for uh, AMR research, which is actually getting new antimicrobial drugs and compounds. So this is what they were looking into. It's a huge paper, huge article with a lot of work put into it. And that's, we should say from the get-go, that uh, it's a huge work that they've done. And basically what they do is use these approaches that we have been talking about to make a machine learn to look for potential drugs that might have antibacterial properties. Talking in general, what they actually did was to first do a screening of around 1,600 FDA drugs that were available and a few hundred natural products towards E. coli, and they actually assess if they have antimicrobial property or not against E. coli. So that's the original set of data. And then they put this into this algorithm uh, to learn, basically to learn, to try to find this relationship between these compounds that some have antibacterial properties and so others don't have. They have given it the data. And then the idea is that they can train this machine to look for things that then later they can give it another set of drugs and then the machine will actually do be able to find hits that could potentially have antibacterial properties, but that we wouldn't be able to find them all the way because either we weren't able to find the commonalities basically between those uh, those compounds. So as I said, they trained the machine in uh, about uh, 20 something hundred compounds. They used to build a predictive model and then they use it to apply it to a 6,000 molecules that were under development as human drugs in one way or another. They generated hits and actually they found one particular one that had a strong antibacterial activity. So then what they actually did a lot of work after they put, they got this original data they put into the machine learning, they did the algorithm, they applied into this 6,000 compounds panel then they got some hits and then they actually took all those hits and they did all the work into looking if it could actually have antibacterial property in uh, in vitro. And then they also did one Murin model, which means just try it in a mouse model. There was a lot of talk around this paper when it came out because, of course, um, it, it was picked up by all the news outlets because it was the first time that this kind of deep learning approach was used in this uh, area. And of course, Everyone is aware of the problem of no new antibiotics coming into the market because it's very difficult to find them. So all this together, of course, took a lot of attention and it, it's been like covered in the popular news and all that. We, leave, we will leave a couple of uh, links in the, in the show notes. But from the scientific community and the people that were close to that, they work day in, day out with this, there was a lot of talk about, is this actually as big as these news outlets make it out to be? And of yeah. course, as we said in the beginning, we give kudos and props. It's a huge work. And the idea behind it, which is using these new potentially very big uh, methods for this area, is also very important. So just to give an example of how, I mean, how this big, massive effort, I mean, in a way, really paid off. It's 
they looked at over what is it over a hundred million molecules is that right yeah that's right okay <laughs> they looked yeah, at 100 in the paper yes yeah yeah overall in the paper they looked at a hundred million molecules and found like in, when looking at the, i mean this is a huge amount this is so much and they managed to look at this screen this through their library and everything like that in four days and that is just like an indescribable amount of data that they managed to ha handle in four days With, is, not including how long it took actually to get the algorithm to yeah, yeah. be working but they actually this is just when they actually data. screened it afterwards after they had like everything set up and then they kind of ran these new molecules through it but 100 million million molecules in four days is impressive and that like you cannot take that away from anybody <laughs> yes of course we as i said we work with people that really are day in day out handling these uh, pipelines and looking for new antibiotics and finding a compound that can actively end up being a systemic antibiotic is much harder than just looking into the data and finding something that has antibacterial properties in vitro. So, of course, it needs to be said that even though this is a nice experiment, a way or a new way to looking into potential chemical space, which is big, actually I was looking into following certain rules and um, in, in computational chemistry, the idea is that there are 10 to the 60 potential molecules that can be active. So this is huge numbers and exploring new ways of actually getting to look into this. And it's really interesting because we probably will find something at some point that is good. But yeah. in the state we are today and how we can actually look at the things today, finding a potentially good drug, antibacterial drug is difficult it's really difficult and when you talk to these people working on this they tell you yeah bleach and fire will kill i like that little comment yeah. which is like every time you hear that a new compound or vitamin can kill a cell in the petri dish remember so that's a handgun so yeah. that actually tells you yeah it, it, there are much more nuances and it's very interesting but of course then you have to look into resistant patterns you have to look into toxicity you have to look into delivery you need to get the right amount of antibiotic in the right place and everything mm -hmm. so it's much more than that but apart so from all there's that, a difference between like something that has antimicrobial properties and a drug i mean this whole process of like this kills bacteria but it's not a drug like it's important to understand this difference it's definitely a start point and we definitely need a lot of those to get to the point where we find a new drug. Like you need a lot of potential things that can work. If we actually find new methods that can give us a lot of more hits than we would do with the standard methods, that's yeah. all a positive thing. And this is exactly. what I think this article strength is, is mm -hmm. that, yeah, it's a new way that potentially we can explore data and yeah. get more hits. And interestingly enough, they were also actively discounting things that are similar to known antimicrobial drugs. Yes, so getting away. Hmm. It didn't always work. I mean, one of the drugs actually is very similar to a, a known drug, but it's still, I mean, we're still discounting a lot of these issues with rediscovering the wheel. Like we, we're not looking at the same drug again and again, hopefully, and it'll be easier to determine these sort of things. And these sort of things can always be, you know, tweaked and fixed and changed a little bit to improve this, but this is a really good starting point. Yes, it is definitely, it was fun to read it. It was fun to, really fun to discuss it with yeah. colleagues. Uh, so. I think we've had, I think this is one of those articles that we, the two of us have had a lot of different discussions with some of yeah. the same people, but a lot of people. 
<laughs> and it's, it's actually nice to go back to it after the hype of it has passed a little bit. So now yeah. we forgot about this. We are talking now about Corona. Back in 20th of February, we didn't have <laughs> the as we had today, right? It's nice to go back to it and then, yeah, revisiting why is this interesting? What are the pitfalls, of course? And I, we always need to be critical with science too. So yeah. yeah, of course it's good science and you know, you, you, but I always say sometimes people make it out to be more than it actually is. And I understand yeah. the high for it. And I understand that uh, someone that doesn't work in this field is like, Oh, I've completely new approach and machine learning, which is very sexy nowadays. Not just somebody that doesn't work in that field. I had that exact same opinion going into this article and it took me, took me a good amount of time reading to start even seeing anything wrong because I wanted to, I wanted it to be true. You know? Yeah, of course. But I mean, it is true to a potential extent. Yeah. Just don't, don't make it out to be more than what it actually is. Right. Exactly. Um, but it was, it was nice. And I think it fits really well with the interview with Ron in this episode, uh, talking about this more bioinformatics approach, computational approaches. And I do see machine learning being interesting now and it's gonna even be more important in the in the future i really think that it yeah will absolutely i think it'll really take off and as i in the review article they actually even point out you know it's a little underutilized in our field to be yes, honest so there's a potential to to be used for more so if you actually after learning what machine learning is if you actually think there is a potential uh, use or potential ap application of this for something just go ahead and try to to think through it and then maybe contact some computational biologists and some uh, mathematicians uh, informaticians yeah, yeah. then maybe something new can come out of that that would be super interesting and keep in mind i mean this is our discussion neither of us are computational uh, no, we're not. We're, we're not experts not. in this field at all, but we, we, we're doing our best to explain something that at least I understand very little of, really. So with that, we thank you all for being with us one more month in this lockdown in many places and remote of many things. So we hope that this uh, podcast is a companion to you either in your daily walks or in your work and home or whatever your situation is. And of course, remember that you can always contact us for any comments or any uh, suggestions because we are making this podcast for you and we would really like to know what you want to learn about and if you want to hear about someone in particular working in this area, that would be really nice to get some input. So we hope to have you back with us in the next episode. See you. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.